Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for being here this morning again. We're continuing with the passion of Jesus and the the terminology, the passion of Jesus, under normal biblical use, refers to that suffering that Jesus experiences in these last hours before he goes to the cross and at the cross. It obviously does not mean that he has not been suffering for three years and perhaps even more as he has contended with the issues of sin and rebellious men and with his disciples' lack of understanding of some of the basics of the word at least. And so last week, and I thought it was an excellent presentation. I thought Andy did a wonderful job. And for those of you, Mike Battle, who (laughs) thought if Andy was going to be speaking this morning, he'd be here. But if I were coming back, Mike wasn't planning to be here, so I had to lie. (laughs) This morning, Andy talked about the three trials and we move forward. And, and I always like to explain what I feel the Holy Spirit is doing. And there's a reason for that. Because our lives as believers are filled with the presence of God by the Spirit. Amen? The reason we are believers is not because we have made a decision The reason we are believers is not because we have done anything. The reason we are believers is that the Holy Spirit has entered our lives and has changed our hearts, even giving us the ability and the desire to say yes to this great work of being born again, right? We have the Holy Spirit. That is the essence of being a believer. Do you have the Spirit? If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you're not a believer. Somebody said that to somebody somewhere. And so Andy does the three Jewish trials. So obviously what's next? The Roman trials. Okay, there's a little prelude in there, but you know, we can skip that. So that's my thinking. And I think it's quote, normal thinking. And I want to emphasize this and I hope I can get through the class today, but I think it's very important. It's normal, reasonable, semi-intellectual, you know, thinking. This should be next. We are going to go into the Roman trials. You did the Jewish trials, and you even said, next week we'll do the Roman trials. And so I'm ready to look at the Roman trials. And so I think there were a couple of you in here. I said, be praying for me because I'm having trouble. Did I, how many, did I tell you, you, okay, you, I asked, wow. And so come Wednesday, I am hitting a wall, a wall. It's like a door is closed and I can't get into the room where the trials are contained. And so, I'm, you know, so I asked, I think it was you, Cliff. I think I would talk to you about it. I talked to old man Alman here. I said, y'all pray because some kind of way this is really a shut door for me. My normal thinking is we proceed this way. 
But you see, we always have to submit what we think and our normal thinking and the, quote, obvious next step. We must learn to submit it continually to the decision and the leading of the Holy Spirit. Amen? We are not called to be people who are living according to the normal ways of life. So Wednesday evening, ah, I get a little glimpse. And then Thursday, ah, so that's where we are today. We're in this, ah, okay. And then just to share with you, this morning, I'm ready now after this message, this teaching, I'm ready now to go to the Roman trials. And again, again, I'm not getting anywhere. And I'm thinking, what's wrong? And I really, what I wanted to do is just kind of quickly comment about Judas and, you know, hanged himself and all that and move along. By the way, it's not hung himself, it's hanged himself. And all of a sudden this morning... I want you to slow down and deal with the issue next week of repentance. And what does it mean to be repenting? Was Judas really a saved person who lost his salvation? Or why couldn't he repent? Why didn't he repent? Was that repentance? And I was going to skip over it, AJ. You know, just kind of move along to get the class moving. God is very strange. And he doesn't hopefully allow us. To have our way. Father, thank you for your word. <clears throat> thank you for the intervention of your spirit. Father, we desire, if we are going to be conformed to the image of your son, this man, this son of man, who lived and breathed and thought and desired and decided and was motivated by every aspect of his life. Under the leading of the Holy Spirit. Nothing he did was outside the Holy Spirit. Nothing. And that's your image. So that the totality and the comprehensiveness of this man was absolutely, completely, Father, about you. Father, we know. That to be conformed to the image of your son means this kind of life. So we ask today for greater ability and power from your spirit to be truly spirit-filled, spirit-led, spirit-infused, imbued people. For, Father, that's the only way. You will be declared in us in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning before we look at these trials, the, the scene of this trial, what I felt the Holy Spirit wants to do is to look at the theme before we go into the scene. And one of the dangers, or maybe I wouldn't say dangers, one of the weaknesses too often in the church is this. We go through these categories of teaching and these activities. And so here, we've done the Jewish trial, and now here, we're in the Roman trial. And so we teach the scenes, if you would, of the life of Jesus, and we move forward. 
But too often what happens is we must be careful never to consider or think about or look at a scene apart from the theme Because every scene within a play has something to do with the author's theme, correct? And so if we miss the theme and look at the scene only, certainly we get something out of it. But we miss the preponderance of what the author is wanting to say in this scene. In what he is wanting us to move forward towards something. There is a goal in the theme. And this scene, if you would, moves toward that goal to accomplish the fullness of that goal. So we look at this scene this morning and we think about it moving back from the trials to something else. And what we're going to say this morning, all of us have heard maybe a hundred times, but again, I think it's critical that we hear it over and over and over again to make sure that when we study any part of the Bible from Genesis 1 all the way to end of Revelation 22, that we are looking and studying and reading in the context of the comprehensive revelation of God in his Son. Because this book is about the glory of God the Father as revealed in the incarnate Son of God. Correct? Okay. In Genesis 1.28, how many of you are surprised that we went back to Genesis for a moment? In Genesis 1.28, God had given Adam authority to rule over the created order in his name. Do you remember that? That's critical. It's critical. It's not just something to know. It's absolutely critical. God created the universe and everything for one purpose, in order to display the magnificence and the glory of his nature and character in humanity, that we would make what man in our image after our likeness. And the way that that image of God is displayed is through the rule of Adam and Eve and their progeny, their kids, within the context of the entire world, through their obedience to God. That's critical. So God creates Adam, if you would, to be an under king, a king upon the earth. A king upon the earth. Now keep that in mind. This issue of kingship, this issue of the throne, this issue of authority is absolutely central to the message of the gospel from Genesis 1 all the way through to Revelation 22. The theme of the throne, the authority, the rule of God. So Adam is created this way. But in rejecting God as his king, Remember, Adam is to rule in God's name under the authority and the leading of God. And the context of Adam's ability to fulfill God's will is Adam's obedience. Amen? Amen. Obedience. And I've understood what people say here, but I don't like it when they say it. Everything about Christianity is do's and don'ts. Everything. Everything about Christianity is do's and don'ts. For what is our first doing in Christ? To receive him. That is our doing. We are to receive Christ. That is our doing. That is the first work that God gives us to do by, by his indwelling spirit. It is his empowering in us. 
It is giving us the ability and the desire. And we have a responsibility to respond to the grace of God by what? Faith. Faith is a work of God with which we are cooperating. So I call that a doing. It's the doing of faith. And as a result of that, every other act in our Christian life is an outworking of the doing of faith. You cannot separate faith from doing. We make a mistake. And so, as a result of this, sorry, and so in rejecting God as king, an alien antichrist being was able to gain rule of the created order. Right? A usurper, an antichrist being. As a result, this being usurped God's rule through his people. Remember, God is ruling the earth through his people. That was his purpose in Adam. That God's rule would come upon the earth and be displayed in his people through us. And the basis of that is our obedience. So this usurper usurps God's rule through his people, gaining absolute control over all the aspects of human society and culture. Do you believe that? We don't believe it. No, we don't believe it. There are two cultures upon the earth. I'm not going to get finished this. There are two cultures upon the earth. There is the culture of the God of this world, the kingdom of this world. And there is a culture of the kingdom of heaven. Do you believe that? If you know the Bible and if you believe the Bible, you have to. There is no intermingling of these cultures. There is either one culture called darkness, right? Or there is another culture called what? Light. There is one culture that is anti-Christ, and there is another culture called what? Christ himself. There are only two cultures upon the earth. And so which one are we in? Hopefully we are all in the kingdom of God. That is a culture, if you would. That is a society. That is a group of people that we are under the rule and reign and leading of God's spirit. In 1 John five nineteen, here's what the Bible says. The entire world. What? Did, is it in your notes? Could you, could you underline the circle entire or the whole, however it said there, the whole world, the entire world, depending on your translation? How much is, Elaine, how much is in that? Everything. When the Holy Spirit says the entire world, what does he mean? Everything. The entire world lies in the lap. Oh, that's King James. The entire world is what? Under the authority of who? Who? Satan. So so what does the Holy Spirit mean when he says this? He means that anything and everything apart from the kingdom of God's rule in his people is under Satan's control for Satan's purpose, which is anti-Christ, rejecting, rebelling, besmirching, belittling, etc. Christians don't believe this. We don't believe it. 
But this is what God says. I, I, am I making this up? This is what the Holy Spirit says to us. Somebody might say, well, Peter, no, that's a little radical. I, did, I didn't write the book. I didn't write the book. What? Joe, Joe. It's very unwise for a man who needs this contraption to get around to say that to me, which I can pour water on you before you can close your book. But you're right, I was there. <laughs> if you need more human in this class besides my face, you're in trouble. He is the usurper. The Bible calls this malevolent usurper, look, the God of this world. I think it's in your notes, and I have some references. Do you see that? Yes. The God of this world, the evil one, the devil, Satan. And as a result, as a result of this, we continually, and I think you find this in your own life, we are continually wrestling against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. What is this present darkness? It's the world in which we live. The Bible calls it a present what? Darkness. I mean, look at the word that God uses continually, the descriptions of God's use, um, God's uh, description of this world, which is not of the kingdom of God. Against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies. And the one who rules over this is the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not what? What? That they may not what? See what? The gospel of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. I, I, I may have misquoted that a little bit. <clears throat> and the medium of Satan's rule... Do you know what I mean by that? The medium of Satan's rule in the realm of our natural is the realm of our natural bodies, which the Bible calls the flesh. The flesh. Now NIV has it wrong. The word flesh is S A R X, socks, and NIV translates it uh, the nature, you know, the old nature. No. It's the flesh. It's this stuff which we are all carrying around with us. It's the stuff that when you get up in the morning and you first look in the mirror, it frightens you. It's the flesh. The flesh is the medium of Satan's rule in this world because it is fallen. It is birthed into sin by sin, and it carries and is polluted and permeated by sin in every cell of our bodies is sin, sin, sin. Now, that's kind of pessimistic, but that's what the Bible tells us. So Romans 7, 5, listen to what the Apostle Paul says. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And so what does the flesh produce? Death. And this fruit of death is what? What is the fruit of death? Sin. Sin. 
Death, what, what is he talking about death here? Death as to our relationship or our filial, family relationship and fellowship with God. Death in that sense is spiritual death as also it is physical death. It is a putting to death finally one day in the grave unless Jesus returns first that every one of our bodies will cease to live thankfully that this body that we carry around with us that is so permeated with sin will one day come to an end and we will be clothed with a new body of absolute righteousness so that in our new body every cell of our new body then will be permeated with God's presence and righteousness amen so we have to die and we want to die if we have any sense at all if we have any sense at all Our natural fallen bodies are sin-soaked. We don't believe this. I listen to believers all day long. I listen to the struggle in myself, Steve. We don't believe this. What do you mean we don't believe it? I think we theologically believe it, but we practice an unbelief in it. Amen? We're sin-soaked. We're sin-motivated. We are sin activated, infecting every thought and every action and every desire of our bodies. And even as believers, I don't know whether Spurgeon or whoever said this, but even our tears of repentance are sin stained. Why? Because we cannot come at any place to any, um, anything that we can do to be absolutely without sin in any and every aspect of our lives. Even when we say, Jesus Christ is Lord, we say it within a context of a body that is permeated with sin. And so even it is as best we can say to worship God, it is still sin stained. Why? Because it is being said within the context of a sin soul person. Does that make sense to you? We can't get away from it. We can't free ourselves of it. All we can do is to, by faith, moment by moment, submit to the ongoing transformational work of the Holy Spirit to conform us to the image of God's Son, Romans 8, 29, so that at the end of our life, We are as conformed as God would make us. You see, the Apostle Paul in Romans 7.24 calls this body of ours, this body of what? Death. 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 His body as mine, as yours, is completely given over. The body, the flesh. You understand, I'm not talking about the spirit of God in me. The body, the flesh, is completely given over and dominated by sin. And therefore, there must be a warfare, and there is a warfare in us to as new believers and new creatures in Christ to be living in this sin-soaked, sin-motivated, sin-activated body to be fighting and wrestling against the activity of this body by the Spirit so that we are no longer being controlled by the effects and desires 
of sin, but we are being controlled more and more by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why we struggle so much. That's why we hurt so much. That's why we are so insulted, so upset, so angry. Everything, it's all about this filthy, fallen flesh. Can you say amen? It's all about that. If I'm disappointed in a fleshly way, it's sin. Look at your feelings. Look at your thoughts. Look at your desires. Look at your motivations as I have to look at mine. And recognize everything of this body is in sin. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit to be delivering us from the effects and the control of this sin-soaked body. So that even in this sin-soaked body, the glory of our God may begin to be manifested to a world so that they can be absolutely startled at the difference and at the unnaturalness, the supernaturalness of the presence of God in these bodies. Amen? We don't believe this as a church. I'm talking about universal, but also here. We don't believe it. But it's simply what the Bible tells us. You were dead in your what? Transpass. Somebody said that to someone somewhere. What reference did I just quote? Ephesians chapter what? Two verse what? Okay. Thank you. You see, Satan has become the king of this fallen humanity. But God is going to overthrow his rule through his coming king. So there is a king upon the earth. He is ruling through the fallenness of this world, through the natural system, the natural cultures, the natural societies, the natural whatevers. Satan is ruling. Do you believe that or not? Yes. He wouldn't be called the God of this world if he weren't ruling this world. So God must send another king who will in the most unique and unexpected and unnatural and anti-sensible way overthrow the power of this king. You got that? Did you get that? Satan has become the king of the fallen humanity, but God will overthrow his rule through the anointed king. Ever since Satan has usurped God's rule, when did he usurp it? What is the verse? What is the verse that says Satan has usurped God's rule? Genesis 3, 6. The last three words. And he, who? Adam, what? Eight. There it is. At that moment, Satan was crowned, if you would, the God of this world. Right then, boom, I'm the God. And humanity fell as to his ability to be God's ruling agent upon the earth. The history of the Old Testament, the history of the Old Testament, this book of books, this Bible. Oh, this Bible. The history of the Old Testament is the history of Satan's opposition to the coming of this king, the last Adam, the incarnate son of God. God creates and anoints Adam to be king upon the earth. What's the next scene 
And the serpent was the most crafty beast of the field. Right? Genesis 3, 1. Adam is crowned king and God is ready to move. And he immediately and continually thereafter through the entire Old Testament, of course, New Testament, the history of the Old Testament can be described in a couple of different ways, one of which is Satan's unrelenting, malevolent opposition to God being declared the ruler of this world through his people. It's all about the majesty of God's throne. The majesty of him who sits upon the throne. Remember in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw Yahweh. Yahweh. Where? Sitting on his throne. Remember the temple? Where is that? Isaiah what? Six. The true king will come to comfort I'm sorry, confront and destroy the rule of this false king. This true king will deliver God's people from their slavery to sin and Satan by how? Paying the penalty of death on their behalf so as to destroy Satan's ability to rule over them. Genesis, uh, Hebrews 2.14. With the birth of Jesus, the king of glory is now on the earth exercising his kingly authority through his teaching and his works of power. No wonder the heavenly host burst birth forth and said, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is well pleased. Remember that? Behold, I bring you good news of a great joy. For unto you this day is born in the city of David, what? A Savior, a Messiah, a Christ, who is... Christ the Lord, and you will find him, what? A little baby wrapped in the swaddling or the, uh, the clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly they were with the angels. No wonder the whole angelic host of God's, you know, created order, these unfallen angels, begin to burst forth with great shouts of joy. Finally, the king has arrived. Finally, he's here. Finally. All that the Old Testament was prophesying and promising and moved toward. He's here. He's here. The king of glory is upon the earth. And he's sleeping in a stable. But this king, you see, exercises his authority differently than any other ruler. Any other ruler. It's insane. It doesn't make sense. It's crazy. It's unnatural. It's almost heretical if you're... A Jewish believer. This king has come in the humility of obedience to face and overthrow the, overthrow the rule of the God of this world. And he does this in the most unnatural way. Remember the natural world is under the rule of Satan. Two worlds upon this earth, the natural world and the spiritual world or the world of the spirit. And he's going to do it as a lamb to be slaughtered for the sin of his people. This is why Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. It's the crescendoing, crescendoing of his great 
purpose upon the earth. From his birth conception, really, and his birth in, in, in uh, where was he born? In Bethlehem. All the way through to Palm Sunday, that first day of the week before Passover. The first day of the week before Passover. There has been an upward, upward move of God toward the apex of the combination of his work. And so Jesus enters on Palm Sunday. And this week, this entrance on Palm Sunday, this week would witness the crescendo of the cosmic clash between the usurper king resulting in who will rule God's people and God's creation forever. That's what it's all about. It's who will rule God's people and God's creation forever. This cosmic clash has come to a culmination. This is what's going on behind the, the trials and the Jewish trials and the Roman trials. All of this is going on and is the background for what we must understand the trials to be about. So on that first day of the week, so many years ago in Jerusalem, two opposing processions entered God's city. Two, two. Two opposite processions entered God's city on that Palm Sunday. Two. You had the procession of God's king. Jesus riding a donkey into the city as the people cheered him by laying their cloaks and palm branches on the road in front of him and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, son of David, Hosanna. Remember that? Remember that? Hosanna. From the eastern side of the city. Remember, he's come from Bethany and all he's entering from the Mount of Olives. Remember that? He's coming into the city on the east. And as he comes in, Hosanna, son of David. Hosanna, son of David. Hosanna. I don't believe it's Hosanna. I think, Hosanna, Hosanna, son of David. Hosanna. What? And now the king of glory, as the king of glory is entering Jerusalem to face the usurper in the person of Pilate, who represents the imperial power of Rome and Caesar, who was thought to be a living God, a living God, Caesar. And Pilate is his representative. You see, this scene, remember, was prophesied. Some of you know that in Zechariah 9, 9. Behold, your king, who? Your king, who? Your king. This second or last Adam, here he is, your king, is coming humble, riding on a coat and a file of a coat. And the crowds greeted him with, Hosanna, son of David, Hosanna. Save us, son of David. Remember what the word Hosanna means? Save us. Save us. You see, too many in the church think that means we want to be saved from our sin and become Christians. No, it doesn't doesn't mean that at all. That's not what they were saying. As Jesus was entering with his disciples on the east, there was the imperial procession coming in from the west. You remember Passover. I'm going to compare it to Mardi Gras, but obviously it isn't. But as far as crowds and excitement and celebration is concerned, Passover is like a Mardi Gras. And so once a year you have 
And it's estimated at least a million or so people in Jerusalem and in the vicinity to celebrate Passover. What's the big deal? Just so they're there to have a good time. No, because Passover, you remember, is the celebration of God delivering his people from a usurper called Pharaoh. You remember that? And these people are pumped up. God delivered us. God delivered us. And what is the hope? One day our king is coming back and this king is going to overthrow Rome as he did. And so because the Romans already know this is a hostile city, right? This is a hostile city to, go, to the Romans. These are, these are crazy people. These people are nuts. They got religion on the brain. You see, they're crazy. You didn't know that, did you? They're crazy people. They only think of one God and anybody else who thinks of another God. And so why can't you accommodate us and believe that Caesar's a God? So what? Just, no, they'd rather die. They're nuts. And so Pilate, whose place is where? In Caesarea, Martyrema. Down the road, remember? It's in Caesarea. Remember the Caesarea? Every year he marches into Jerusalem with a battalion of soldiers. There's already a you know, contingent of soldiers already in Jerusalem, but he brings a whole battalion with him. Why? In order to be ready for any insurrection. And so from the west is entering the city. Roman imperial God of this world rule. On the west is entering Caesar in the person of Pilate, exercising his rule and reign and control and power and dominance over the world. The soldiers coming in, holding the imperial banner and declaring in their garb and in their whole demeanor, Caesar is Lord. And when the people are confronted with that, that procession, and they see this man coming in whom they have been hoping is their Messiah deliverer, what do they begin to say? Save us, save us, Lord, save us from Rome. You see, be king and overthrow those people. That's what Hosanna, son of David, is all about. David, you remember the great king. Because the Messiah will be the son of David who will come upon the earth and deliver his people and set up his kingdom forever. And when they are saying Hosanna, they're saying, save us from that. You see, Pilate represented Caesar, the man God. And he came into Jerusalem every year at Passover in order to quell and keep the peace. You see, this procession of Pilate and the Roman was intended to overwhelm the citizens of Jerusalem, dissuading them from any thought or plan of insurrection. There's no way we are under rule and we cannot get out of it. We are helpless in the face of such power. This is physically the case, but it's also spiritually the case for every person upon the earth. Pilate's procession announced that Caesar rules this world. Have you seen the movie? 
And Jesus' entrance says that he is here to confront and destroy the rule of this usurper as symbolized in Roman rule. And Caesar is symbolizing whose rule? The God of this world. So the stage for this cosmic confrontation is set. Jesus will meet Pilate. And in doing so, he will meet the God of this world who is ruling through Rome. This is what's happening when we read the first two verses of chapter 27. When morning came and all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. They thought they were getting rid of Jesus. And yet they were doing God's predetermined will. Remember before the foundation of the world. You've read that, what Peter says in Acts 2. It is God's work. And they were delivering God's king into the hands of Satan's representative so that in this conflict, this king of glory will bow his knee to death's grip and in doing so, he will take death to death. And Jesus' death will be finally, for God's people, death's death. That's what's going on as we watch Jesus being taken to Pilate. The crescendo of this great cosmic conflict that began in Genesis 3-6 and is now about to be fulfilled in the victory of God's king in his resurrection. Amen? See you next week.